Hello everyone, my name is Vinny. And this is Justin. Today we'll be talking about police brutality and the police in general. Specifically, over the course of this podcast, the question we really want to answer is why? Why are they powerful? Why do people care? And why do people devote so much time to figuring out solutions? Yeah, exactly right, Vinny. Uh, you know, thinking about the police, uh, especially as they exist in our uh, our modern society, it can help to consider two major uh, structures, uh, hegemony and civil religion. Uh, these two uh, ideas can help us think about uh, society and about the police's role within it. So really, over the course of this podcast, we'll be explaining what each of these things mean, how they interact with the police as they exist today, Uh, And ultimately, we want to see a sort of a balance between how these two concepts can explain the police's power and maybe how a solution in terms of police reform could address these concepts and fit within them. So let's start with hegemony. Hegemony describes a, a very subtle form of coercion that the government tends to engage in. This is generally a, a Marxist analysis of power. It started primarily with a philosopher named Antonio Gramsci. Him, as well as Lowell, uh, James Lowell, have a very similar description of what hegemony is. Effectively, they argue that the government, but generally any arm of what you would consider the elite, all have ideas that they want society to believe. And because the elite have power and they would benefit from society having the same views that they want, they have means of getting society to believe these things. You can think of the things that you learn in school, the things that you see in movies, even straight up propaganda that you might see, all as forms of hegemonic ideas. Really what this all means is that the government is, or the ruling class as they often refer to it, is finding ways to dominate your thoughts and convince you of believing in things that you don't know you have been convinced to believe in. Uh, yeah, exactly right, Vinny. Uh, think of hegemony as like the entire spectrum of, of idea. Uh, when someone considers an issue, uh, the hegemonic structure would basically govern uh, the limits of what they're even able to conceive, uh, what's even possible or what they would even think of. And uh, you're exactly right. Uh, thinking, you know, about powerful structures, uh, especially in connection with the police, you know, you can think of high up uh, government officials, politicians, Uh, people in positions of power that have a a vested interest in having control over society, and the police are are, uh, certainly a way to get to that position. Uh, You know, I think this idea of hegemony, um, it does connect in with the militarization that we've seen of the police. Uh, You know, those that are are in power have, have passed policies that have given the police even more power, and they benefit from this. Uh, the same way that you can think of the police and the military as two hegemonic structures in and of themselves. Uh, you know, they both uh, benefit those that um, that profit from their activities and the funds that they, they fund into these two organizations or these two structures uh, do benefit those in power. And that's what kind of keeps the cycle of hegemony going. That's exactly right. And there are a couple of philosophers I want to bring up who touch a little more on how exactly militarization coincides with ideological hegemony. So one is Louis Althusser, a French Marxist philosopher, who is 
known for a distinction that he makes between repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. The former, which he just calls RSA, are these arms of the ruling class that exert physical force. These are really just the government because the government tends to have the only legitimate source of, uh, of physical force, and that would just be like the military and the police. Then the latter, ideological state apparatuses, or ISA, exert ideological force, the kind of hegemony that we're focusing on. But what Althusser, Althusser says is that these two complement each other, that ISA in enforce the legitimacy of RSA, and in turn that the RSA ensure that people never go too far out of line, so long as they are docile, for lack of a better word, they're more prone to follow in the steps of the ISA. So these two things kind of feed into each other, and Althusser explains that the ISA really maintain their power and instill ideological hegemony by turning people into interpolated subjects. It's his term, and it, it basically describes this phenomenon of ideas becoming traditions. And when I say that hegemony focuses on beliefs, these beliefs that you have can be really subtle, and you can think of them as the traditions that they result in. The simplest form of this I could think of is when you wave at someone, that's your tradition. All it represents is this idea that you're supposed to be polite to people. And while that seems like a relatively harmless form of a hegemonic ideal, it it's something that everyone has been told to believe, and people never question that they should wave at people or that they should be generally polite. That's the kind of thing that Althusser describes. Um, and the other person I wanted to talk about was Davies. Tom Davies is a, a senior lecturer for American history at the University of Sussex, and he explains in some of his writing that hegemony in general focuses often, in the case of the U.S., on suppressing narratives of history that are anti-white. So very often, groups that go for violent or even just generally radical forms of freedom and fighting for it are painted as the enemy, painted as being outsiders in history, whereas people who fight for progress in a more peaceful way, such as Martin Luther King, are really the forefront of how America likes to tell its history. So when you think about how hegemony is present everywhere, how it serves our national identity, and how it specifically relates to race, you can really start to see how the police tie in. Uh, yeah, exactly right, Vinny. These, uh, these ideas of uh, hegemony and ideological tradition, uh, they make me think of another um, connective idea here, and that's that of civil religion. Uh, so thinking of how to define civil religion, it's kind of a charged term, but uh, one uh, historical definition was provided by the professor of political science, uh, Elias M. West, who worked at the University of Richmond at the end of the 20th century. Uh, to clarify the term uh, for basic use, uh, West would argue that a civil religion exists when people believe in a transcendent spiritual reality, which is the source for meaning for the nation expressed through public rituals and symbols. And you see this idea of symbols between both hegemony and civil religion. Uh, but to break that uh, definition down a little bit, um, the transcendent spiritual reality 
is basically it doesn't have to be a, a religious deity. Uh, clearly, this is a civil religion. It can even be in a secular society or a planned secular society such as that of the United States. Uh, but the transcendent reality uh, for the United States that you can think of is, um, is law and order, at least in the modern sense. Uh, thinking of how uh, people and those in power uh, specify how we live in a, a safe and secure and law-abiding society uh, grants the idea of law and, by consequence, order, uh, adherence to the law by society as a transcendent idea. And that's what America is striving towards, this golden, shining city upon a hill. And we get there by following the twin gods of law and order. Uh, basically, with this idea and place, uh, the meaning for the nation is secured uh, to strive for these ideas and to maintain adherence to them. And this is seen through public rituals and symbols. Uh, those kinds that you uh, mentioned, Vinny, those, those same kinds of symbols can be um, uh, saluting the troops, uh, clapping when you see symbols of authority, uh, standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, things that show that you adhere to this idea, as well as uh, following the law. But those, those rituals are, are open expressions of reverence uh, besides just simple uh, obedience you know you're it's a it's an excited obedience it's an excited reverence and, and this idea of of civil religion uh, when you connect it to the police you can think about how how they fit within and the police they they kind of function as guardians of the transcendent reality uh, think about who actually um enforces the law kind of going back to the idea from althusser that you mentioned Vinny. Uh, the police are the expression of the state's legitimate monopoly on violence. Uh, they're the ones who actually enforce the law on the streets. And therefore, uh, they are acting as uh, almost a form of guardianship over those ideas. They have to make sure law and order are actually enforced. And their presence within a society is the manifestation of those ideas uh, within that society. And you can think of the ritualized uh, uh, the ritualized. Uh, clothing and symbols that the police enjoy as they go about this. The badge, the car, the flashing blue and red lights, the uniform, it all connects into this symbol of law, this symbol of order. In a sense, they can also turn in a, into a kind of inquisitor, if you will. Uh, when the police are used uh, to police neighborhoods and they have a high presence, they can sometimes uh, fall into, especially with minority um, or minority communities or urban inner city communities, and they can shift from what would be called uh, positive, uh, legitimate law enforcement into racialization. Uh, so in legitimate law enforcement, you can think of how an individual would, uh, the police would go after an individual after they break the law, and they would seek to arrest them, charge them, and then they would give that to the court system. But in racialization, an individual, uh, for some factor, often race, is singled out. Their the finger is pointed, and they try to figure out, after making an act of suspicion, if something can be, uh, if some crime can be applied to that person. Can we pin something on them? And so, in that sense, the suspicion comes before the crime, or before someone has actively committed some some kind of wrong against society. And this idea, so civil religion. Uh, the police are acting as guardians of these law and order, and that kind of connects into the way they legitimate uh, their support within American society. Yeah, I, you made a great point. You can see these symbols everywhere, even if they're a little hard to see on the surface, but even beyond 
what you might see in everyday life, things like saluting the troops, things like clapping when you see certain signals of authority, you can see in specific niche groups, almost in the, the churches of this civil religion in which the police are at the forefront, there is very religious language that's used. For this, I want to look to the Blue Lives Matter Facebook group. It's got over 2 million people in it. It's about the biggest community of police supporters with a fervent faith that you could find online. And it, it is very indicative of a lot of these religious things. I really do encourage you to look, but if you go to the about page of this section, the first words that are said about this group is that it is dedicated to the warriors who stand on this line, to those who wage war in the streets, to those we have lost and will lose to our brothers and sisters. You can tell that there are very emotionally charged words here that even speak to religion. Things like dedicated, warriors, wage war in the streets, lost and will lose. The page goes on to even describe these sort of sacred incidents and sacred people in this religion. It states that the name of Blue Lives Matter originated from the incident in Ferguson, Missouri, kind of describing this as the genesis of the group. And later on in this Facebook page, it talks about how, quote, Americans deserve the right to live their lives the full protection of the laws, but must realize that certain sacrifices should not be taken in vain. You can see a little more of this religious language here, and even looking beyond how the police kind of entrench their support in groups like this, you can see that this support is well alive. There are some stats from Pew that can kind of put this abstract idea into hard numbers. They find that about 7 in 10 white evangelical Protestants and 77% of white Catholics believe that the police across the country are doing an excellent or good job protecting people from crime. This just shows that civil religion is not exclusive with traditional religion, but the, the stats also say that in describing situations where doing what is morally the right thing would require breaking a department rule, 57% of officers say they would advise their fellow officers to do the right thing rather than follow the rule. And what this tells us is that the police have support for being treated as their own virtuous agents rather than agents of the law. It's almost as if, in the context of the civil religion, order is no longer something that is provided by the law. It's something that the police give us, and this represents a, a sort of a recent shift, and it explains why the police have so much trust in them, because they are seen as the last line of defense between order and chaos. They are the warriors who wage war in our streets. Exactly right, Vinny. Thinking of this, where does order come from and this uh, this idea of support for that idea within American society? Uh, going back to this idea of um, waging war in the streets, uh, Steve Martineau, uh, who's written on police killings in the past, has, has spoken about the similarities between high-profile killings of um of often minority men, Oscar Grant, Alan Bluford, Trayvon Martin, Troy Davis, and individuals like these who we've seen in the news. And something that the police do throughout these interactions is 
take the idea of order into their own hand. And those of the victims are seen as outside that established order, outside that idea of order. Basically, uh, Martinos speaks about how police use a repeating structure um, between high-profile police killings when, when police use lethal force. Uh, first, they create a situation, uh, some kind of impasse between the individual and, say, the officer. Uh, the officer sees the individual as a threat, and they're beginning to be seen by any onlookers as such. You know, someone who's watching uh, this police officer interact with this individual notices that it does become hostile, and it does become something where uh, the, the police officer does uh, start to summon that idea of their order. They become uh, the order against this arbiter of chaos. Uh, the next part is the drive for obedience, demanding the person get on the ground, put their hands up, do something to follow the rules of the officer, to, to get back in line with order. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, the demands or the way they're provided uh, can terrify or simply be impossible for the subject to, um, to fulfill in the way the police are demanding. And then you have a reaction from the subject. Uh, maybe they run, maybe they yell, maybe they confront the officer, but they do something that doesn't connect with the order that the police has given them. And then the final uh, devastating uh, step is the rendering of lethal force. Uh, the officer often will shoot the individual in question, and then they die. Uh, so when you look at this system, uh, at the end, what did the police have to get to uh, to basically legitimize that action to, to finally sh set off that fire firearm and the idea that's given is that the individual the victim is outside this idea of order they're outside um the the principle the the transcendent reality that gives society meaning and because of that uh, the guardians the warriors of the streets have the right even nay the obligation uh, to bring them back in line or to eliminate them uh, from threatening the ideals that give society meaning. So I think now is a good time to talk about the why this matters part of this conversation. Because when you hear about some of the very extreme and awful things that can be justified when people think with their hearts and think with the context of civil religion over what might be considered traditional morality, you have to look at the people this affects the most. And in terms of civil religion, you can kind of see this in the work of Candace Owens. There's a video that oh, yeah. this figure had published um, around the time that George Floyd's name started to hit the news. And the video is titled in all caps, I do not support George Floyd, here's why. In that video, you can see a lot of this religious language. You can see Candace Owens praying David Dorn, who is a police officer who was killed during the protest over George Floyd's death, as a martyr and an inspiration. But what you can also see is that she paints black criminals who, in her words, have failed to make good on fifth, sixth, seventh chances almost as demons she says that they they don't deserve more chances than they've already had she never says that george floyd deserved to die in the way he died but she's very careful to always add those words at the end and 
what you can see here is that when people think in this religious mindset, when they see the police as this all-holy source of order and something challenges that order, they lash out. And because we've seen the police constantly at odds with minorities because, well, for a number of reasons, including poor bias training and generally unaddressed issues when it comes to police culture, we see that these two are at odds and the supporters of the police naturally have to become the opponents of minorities. I mean, Blue Lives Matter started as a response to Black Lives Matter. People refuse to say it. And that in itself really encapsulates why this conflict is so important. Yeah, exactly right, Benny. In the thinking of um, civil religion and the, the, the step that the police, uh, the, the support they grant, they are granted by this kind of religious mindset, uh, bringing this back to hegemony, um, the police as a religious entity and the civil religion as the guardians, they still have to legitimize why they're what they're guarding from. That civil religion needs support. It needs fuel to keep the fire going, to keep the uh, the Inquisition from from burning out. And this is where this idea of uh, hegemony can can come back into play. Uh, with basically the the way the police are used in in urban uh, urban areas to to oppress and to and the interactions they have with the individual and individuals that live off minorities within uh, urban communities uh, someone who's spoken about this is um the individual daryl meeks who's speaking on who's spoken on police militarization in urban areas and something this is actually a historical issue to kind of set this idea of hegemony back up um between 1971 and 1989 a federal funding for law enforcement actually increased annually from $4 million to actually over $19 million. In that same period, uh, federal funding for public welfare increased from only $3 million to $6 million. That's it. And for public housing, from $1.9 million to $5.5 million, occurring, uh, according to the Census Bureau. So you have here a discrepancy in the way funds are being allocated. You have the police with more and more money, more and more power, and more and more firepower. And where is that being directed? Uh, well, it's being directed at the inner cities. Uh, police uh, have, if you look at the incarceration rates and the statistics, uh, the vast majority of, of those that are incarcerated from the underclass, uh, comprising the urban, uh, the urban poor, are, are, are minority individuals, uh, people of color, uh, often men, uh, those who are watched and those who are policed the most, those who actually receive the brunt end of police suspicion and police activity. And so police are using these uh, in these communities or rather than public housing initiatives or social welfare initiatives, uh, instead of trying to build the community up, uh, the police are used to make sure no crime is going on. They, the crusade must go on. It can't be stopped. And so the police as the hegemonic uh, power structure, as the hegemonic power structures benefit uh, from the police's existence and their continual activities, uh, the police's civil religion ideology, the civil religion support they grant, the religious support they have from their, uh, from their base, it's, it's kept up, the fire is kept uh, burning 
from the targeting of minorities. Someone they have to point the fingers at someone to keep this from from being questioned, and that's how these statistics show us um, where that's actually being levied. Yeah, that, that's a great point, and I, I think generally speaking, we, we've definitely touched on this, but there should be an emphasis on how militarism has really contributed to an especially recent rise in the police's aggressive role in America's civil religion, but really their general prominence. And to think about this, you can kind of contrast what happened under the presidency of George Bush and what happened under the presidency of Donald Trump. Bush was around when 9-11 had happened, and in response to that, the police had this image of being almost akin to firefighters. The message that was pushed publicly, uh, at the very least within our borders, was that we needed unity, that we needed to come together. And as a result, the police were never really at the forefront of America's civil religion. People who were patriots, that they loved the police, but that wasn't the center of our discourse. As it is more recently, after everything that happened under the Trump presidency, we've seen that the police really are the center of America's civil religion. We've seen that Donald Trump is someone who wants to think of himself as a wartime president. And, well, he made it so that we're fighting a war within our borders. And if you're someone who loves America, you have to be someone who loves the police. So we see how all these things really tie together. We see how militarism and hegemony have coupled with each other to to really use civil religion in the most horrible way possible and i guess that i kind of want to talk about solutions for this now because uh, alex vitale uh, he's an author who wrote a book about abolishing the police and while most people tend to talk about these solutions through the lens of can they work is there money for this we just heard from justin there's a discrepancy between how much money goes to the police and how much money goes to general social programs I think it's worth noting that if we got rid of the police, their civil religion hold would also go away or at the very least have to change. In whatever solution involving abolishing the police, you can see that you can't really get too much awful backlash from being a fervent lover of social housing. You just get rid of the aggression when you get rid of the police. Uh, yeah, you know, thinking of, of how to get rid of or, or solutions to the problem. Uh, something else that hegemony tells us is you got to think outside the box. But hegemony, well, hegemony kind of is all about the box. So it's a, it, the, the big trouble is how, how do you how do you find those solutions? How do you convince people of those solutions when um, they've even been uh, trained by the by the majority society to think um, and, and frankly, some narrow ways. And you know, the, the jury's still out on, on if people are, uh, are able to be convinced of, of, these, of these structures and of the police as, as a potentially uh, dangerous um, incarnation as, a, as, as, they are, as they exist today as a uh, institution within society. Uh, the New York Times found that uh, considering the majority of society and uh, those with power, um, 52% of white voters believed that the death of George Floyd was part of a broader pattern of excessive force. 
Uh, this was taken shortly after um, after that tragic death uh, last year. Um, and individuals ex- and interviewed also expressed sadness at realizing that the remaining po- police br- brutality present in the country. You know, that's kind of going against the civil religion, this, uh, this history of America, that police brutality is an issue of the past. Uh, but coming to terms with it in the modern sense, uh, some people are being uh, disabused of that notion uh, when they think of uh, the modern, uh, the police brutality of the modern age. Uh, 52%, that is a majority, a very slim one. However, there's also um, statistics and support that show that the majority of individuals uh, have their positions on the police, not from personal encounters, uh, but just based on uh, their ideas of, of their existence within society. Uh, you'd expect that with the interactions people have with the police and the number that, of interactions people have that uh, the interact the general consensus would be more negative uh, based on the fact that when you call the police, typically it's well, it's typically not uh, the most pleasant interaction. Uh, maybe you're being pulled over. It's not really uh, an optional call. Uh, but studies have shown that the people have a overwhelming support or at least a, a majority support for the police. Uh, as the statistics you just spoke about at the Pew Research about 10 minutes ago, Vinny. And so there's kind of a mixed uh, idea of public opinion on the police as a structure. But certainly... Uh, recognizing the issues and and the and the um, embodiment that police have within our society and the interest that they help uh, will actually help us think about uh, potential solutions to this issue and, and ways to move forward uh, that don't involve uh, uh, such an oppressive brutal system yeah this is something that Lowell Gramsci Althusser Davies they all share that they're grim riders, but they're not hopeless. Uh, hegemony, as described by Lowell, says that it has to be reestablished in almost cycles of about a couple decades that people eventually start to ask questions of their government, of the ruling class. And right now, we, we almost have this opportunity that you've described where views are changing. People are really paying attention to what's around them. And I mentioned earlier that abolishing the police is a type of solution that addresses the culture problem with the police. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the only solution or, or even one that is necessarily the, the best, but it is worth considering that if we have this opportunity to really make some kind of an impact on society, if, if people are finally listening and finally watching we should use it on some kind of a solution that addresses the religious and fervent aspects of how people support the police. Because so long as half of the country is convinced that the police are the highest good, it'll be impossible to make any kind of progress or reform that changes them. Such an important point, Benny, really is. Um, Thinking of... uh the importance of, of using this moment and using the present to to rethink uh, our preconceived notions of society and existence. And you know, the civil religion, it's not impermanent, it's not uh, impervious to change. Uh, we've seen in the past, you know, think of Martin Luther King, a, a key prophet of the civil religion, if you will, as someone who uh, society has chosen, embodies the ideas of equality and freedom. Uh, he wasn't always in that position. In the 60s, he was getting locked up by uh, the oppressive civil religion of the day. 
And although people the people can have arguments of the way uh, modern society views Dr. King versus how he historically uh, was ideologically as an individual, uh, no one can dispute that he's revered in the civil religion today. Uh, ideas in the civil religion can change. The same way hegemony must be continually reestablished, the civil religion merely reflects the ideas and transcendent ideas that give society meaning. Uh, those ideas are open to change. Uh, that change is uh, absolutely difficult. It's, it's difficult to change minds, especially when the ideas already exist. The status quo is, is very resistant to that kind of thing. Um, but thinking of, of how the system exists today, especially thinking of, of how an increasingly more diverse America is going to grapple uh, with this system that uh, t- t- uh, too, so too often um, oppresses uh, uh, minorities and the, uh, the um, underclass, those without power, uh, for the benefit of, of power structures that uh, benefit the strong and the wealthy and um, just the powerful within society. And thinking of of really grappling with that issue and grappling with the present reality that we live in and thinking of the structures um, does does um, leave me with hope that that we can't have a better tomorrow. Yeah, that's that's really what I have to take as an approach that seems so grim to think there isn't hope and it is definitely nice to see that people are kind of going through the process of beginning to challenge hegemony almost in an unprecedented way. So I I guess as a a closing note for anyone listening, if you have the opportunity, just consider the kinds of messages around you as they relate to the police, whether these messages are justified and who's saying what you're hearing. You don't have to hate the police. You don't have to dislike them, but as long as you have an idea of how it is that they're being described, you might at least come away with a, a more informed and maybe a more productive position on the issue. Absolutely right, Benny. You know, think about the next time you you see a a badge or a or a, those red and blue lights flash by, and you you start to think about it. And for for a moment, your um your thoughts drift to to that institution or or what you're thinking of that. Uh, ethereal idea, um, just reckon with that and reckon with um, how others and yourself um, are impacted by by that institution itself. Uh, with that, uh, I think we're ready to wrap things up. Absolutely. Thank you for everyone who's listened. Um, stay, stay critical, stay skeptical, stay thinking. Yeah. Have a good day.